We live in a fantasy world now. Reality has been destroyed. This is the time that we really need to pay attention. The probabilities are overwhelmingly on gold's side. That is the best environment to see gold increase its value. And that was something that I I actually wanted to ask you, David. Are there any you know really strategically important commodities that you foresee playing a larger role in the conflicts in the world? Maybe maybe food or or fertilizer as a starter. Well, I mean, so first of all, energy. Expect oil to. I think oil's on track to test two hundred, and by the end of twenty twenty five, I wouldn't be surprised if it's three fifty. Gas will do the same. Gas is going to go to thirty and. In U.S. gas prices, so all of that stuff's going to happen. Um, copper is going to surge. I mean, what do you use copper for right now? Shell casings, artillery shell casings, copper tips everything over the edge. All the metals look like they're ready to rock. Nickel's another one that looks ready to surge, and we saw what happened in the last period. The spike was huge. There just isn't the demand in the peak. So watch that one. And then, meanwhile, precious metals—they're on the way up. Mm-hmm. Uh, give or take corrections, but they've surged off their lows since we last spoke rather nicely. And they've got themselves set up for really like what is a very big move. And in the meantime, as long as energy prices go up, food prices go up and fertilizer prices go up because it uses electricity. So the whole cycle is pretty unpleasant. Mm-hmm. I think in terms of the question you asked about food prices, we are going to go higher than the peaks of 2010-11 in food prices and grains and the social dislocation that comes with that in Africa, all over the place, is really severe. Mm-hmm. So you know, I think this is an extremely entropic period. You know, you've got dynamics over commodities, the way China is set, that I think the bifurcation in East and West is a given. Um, and then you've also got the next level of conflict between democracy and autocracy. And if you didn't get away with that, you've got the inflationary cycle, which is going to create local social unrest and cost of living crisis all over the place. So this is an extremely challenging time. And the problem that the West has is it's led by predominantly linear people. Biden is, for example, one of the most linear presidents you'll find next to Carter. And we know what happened to Carter's presidency. It just didn't work. So wrong people, wrong time in entropic, you know, catalytic moments is a nasty combination. Mm-hmm. Chamberlain found he didn't last long. You know, it, the, the military setbacks were such that the country went to the edge before it found its hero. Um, and Churchill always was on the cusp. You know, if you knew his character, you could have said, well, he's obvious. Even Chamberlain knew if the, if the shit hit the fan, then you bring Churchill in after him. Mm-hmm. You know, and he, to many extent, I think rather nobly facilitated it. Now, interestingly enough, I think Boris has shown himself to be so deficit in his personal traits as a leader, his narcissism, and also strategic vision around how to implement Brexit, that he betrayed Britain. And yet he persists in supporting Ukraine. And one visit to Ukraine got more attention than you know anything Sunak's done. And so it's a good example of the power of you know a lateral person who finally like tags on to the right thing and actually makes a difference. So we just need much more lateral leadership and it's going to be forced upon us, I think, by events. Well, David, how does, let's say, the supply chain constriction from China start to play into commodity prices here? You know, with China opening up, doesn't that help this situation? 
Um, well, China opening up, if its economy really got going, would just tip, tip, tip resource demand upwards. So, um, and if you look at container prices, they're still a way off where they were pre, you know, the recent events, but they're still high. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think what we've really got to do in the West is, is really look at all our supply chains as if we're at war. And governments, and, you know, I talk, there's a piece coming out next week about this, is I think the next step is that Western governments move towards command economies. And there's a number of two factors. One is capitalism is going to show itself to be suffer terribly under this, this inflationary dynamic. Expect bond prices to fall, risk of defaults, and equity prices to go with it. Not a good scene for wealth maintenance. And I indeed, I think we're in a massive wealth collapsing environment, real wealth, especially. Um, so that's one side. And the other side is if you look at wars, wars like World War I and World War II were dominated by a command economy where governments demanded and shaped what was produced for the war effort or the maintenance of the country. And I think it's a time that we all really start to think about what does it take to migrate to a more command orientated economy. Now, it's probably going to be a slight hybrid market command, let's call it. And, you know, instead of telling everyone what to do, which we, we know in the West doesn't work so well, what you really need is a strategy. You need a strategy of saying, we need these resources and we will, for example, with all our government buying programs in the UK, which is 300 billion pounds, we will only buy from people that fit this strategic pattern, that resources are derived from the Western world, that those resource chains can be protected. Australia has been a case in point, it's part of the Western world, but would you get your resources halfway around the world without being interdicted in some shape or form, question mark? Mm-hmm. I think Australia's got a real vulnerability. It's like the right on the edge of the world in that respect, sitting out there, even though it has a, a significant resource base. So that would be how I'd think about it as a government. And I'd actually provide tax incentives for companies that, that facilitated and executed the plan from southern countries, give them discounts, or you create penalties for countries that don't, but companies that don't do it in the right countries. Mm-hmm. So I think it's really, it's about time that governments executed this hybrid market command system where they basically incentivize their whole economy to relate to regions that are sustainable. And there's a bit of talk about it, but this has to be wholesale. It has to be right the way down to your tomatoes, if tomatoes are the thing your soldiers and your people live off. Mm-hmm. Whatever is essential has to be secured, and that is critical. And then looking at how you secure those supply chains, for example, do you have enough warships? You know, How do you protect them? All of those things, someone should be, and I think all com- countries now should have strategic planning departments which are about, in effect, implementing wartime strategies of resilience and sustainability and incentivizing the market side of the system to respond with fiscal incentives. You mentioned something there, David, that I'd like to drill in on a little bit more. That was the the collapse of real wealth. What do you mean by that? So, So we've lived in a nominal world with low inflation, where real and nominal were pretty much the same with marginal inflation. But we live in a real world where inflation is significant. Mm-hmm. A 10% inflation, that means your 100 units next year are worth 90. And the year after, they're worth, you know, 80, actually 81, right? But if you mm-hmm. compound the process. Now, what's relevant is if you're also suffering asset price depreciation, not only do your assets go down, say, if you're in the NASDAQ, you drop 40%. And, you know, and that's a headache. So now your 100's worth 60 but you've also then lost 10% of what's left 
when you when you cash it in on inflation. So now you've got like less than that. Mm-hmm. So this compounding effect of asset price and high inflation levels is essentially going to murder people. And, you know, it kills people on the poverty level through the, the crisis of living and the cost of that process. But it really kills wealthy people who have failed to adapt to this new environment because doggedly for 20 years they've just, you know, gone ka-ching as money printing has raised asset prices. And, of course, their organisations tend to be pretty linear because they managed to stay in. So, you know, the environment shaped linear thinking and they'll hang on to it all the way down. Mm-hmm. So that's wealth distribution reversed, wealth wealth generation reversed. And I think that's happening already. I think the losses last year in America were probably very, very significant for pension funds, you know, for basically anyone whose leverage got carried out because mm-hmm. your leverage was on the thing that was most juicy. You know, the ARC, the, the, ARC, the ARC fund was a good example or you name it. And I think there's much more of that to come. So does the dollar printing and the inflation that, that comes from that really start to show that devaluation this year as you see it? Well, so one of the one of the other areas that's sort of, I think, being hot off the press of what's going on is where is the dollar? We saw that huge surge last year, which which went on for longer than I thought it would, but we did identify the peak quite precisely. And interesting enough, that was the very same point in peak in the dollar as you know the crisis around this trust, which which was fascinating because trust really was the continuation of a lateral Brexit thematic, essentially the idea that you lower taxes, you create far more growth, which is ultimately the only way to counter inflation. I believe that was the right way to do it. Mm-hmm. But it was also this facet fight back from the linear side of, of the Conservative Party and all the government organisations and you know television and the press who I have to say acted in a concerted way to get her into a kill box and never give her a chance. And then along came this this peak of the dollar, which came with the Federal Reserve's decision a few days before, and our press called it a sterling crisis, and it wasn't. It was the whole world suffered the same experience of the dollar being strongest at its peak with their own unique stories. Only this story was woven into a revolution in the Conservative Party that unseated trust, put someone who even the Conservative Party members would never elect into office. Because funnily enough, the electorate never elects linear thinkers. If you look at Sunak, you look at Brown, you look at May, they all have the same qualities and they're unelectable as a result of it. They only get in because of these aberrations in party politics. In this case, well, I think it was really quite a big coup. But going back to it, I think the dollar high is pretty much in place now. And that means from now on, we're going to be surprised at dollar weakness. And why not? Because the inflationary dynamic of printing all those dollars is going to eat it in the butt. Mm. Uh, and so expect dollar weakness, which also means commodity prices are even more expensive if you're a dollar buyer. Mm. Killer. So you get double whammy. Prices go up and dollar goes down. And that's going to be the same story with gold. You're better off owning gold, for example, in sterling is probably my favorite trade of all. You know, sterling gold is definitely outperforming sterling dollar. That's mm. because of the reversal stage we've seen. And I could see sterling going to 160 to two in the next couple of years. Not because we're stellar, but because we are a better version than a moribund collapsing EU led by a pro-Russian Germany that's, you know, ripping itself up or an empire in America that just has printed too much money and can't maintain its system. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, you mentioned the path ahead and the path that would be best suited to fighting the inflation that we're seeing. Obviously, the Fed and other central banks have been raising rates. 
And clearly that mandate really ultimately in some ways has this diametrically opposed outcome of crushing the markets and and crushing people's wealth, as you said. So how do you see the Fed coming into trying to pivot? Do you see that happening this year as well? No, uh, because I think inflation. So, so, so if you go back to you know the last cycle into seventy five, and there was much more, um, you know, overheating in the classical phrase concept that you'd associate with the economy and inflation that made the argument of raising rates the right one, and indeed by the end of seventy five they had kind of raised Fed funds to twenty two percent, CPI was at fifteen, and ten year bonds were at fifteen. It's all looking pretty fruity mm-hmm. before the peak came. And then, of course, there's a period when interest rates are high and inflation drops and your real returns suddenly go through the roof. We went through that after 75 into the 80 period. Um, Now, right now, the Fed or the central banks don't know it, but unconsciously, I think they are emulating the only lever they have under their control, which was inflation. Oh, shit. Our real mandate's always been inflation. Mm-hmm. Actually, we caused the money printing because we took the mandate of growth on for the past 20 years. Now we've got to go back to what we're doing. And now they're going to be zealot-like in terms of their prosecution of that. Whatever they say, they also know in America that they'll blow the economy up. But they're caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. What do we do? How do we do it? Which is why you see them, whenever there's a glint of light, they revert to, okay, we're going to slow down the rates now. Oh, whoops, CPI's come up because of commodity inflation. I think you can see a lot of egg on the faces of the of the Bank of England and the Fed over these projection, projections of lower CPI in the months ahead, because I think the dynamic behind inflation is fundamentally different from their model. It's much more sort of a wave of entropy that goes through human systems to promote change. And I would argue, you know, with my theories, what is inflation? It's a wave of collective entropy that stimulates and catalyzes human change and takes place at a very unconscious level with manifestations like conflict, like increased polarization, and then subsequently wage demands, conflict, adaptation. There, But the, the, the main driver is somewhere. It's part of our growth system. It drives us to fight each other to reevaluate and to reoptimize the human system that sits at the top of the pile, leading the forefront in this anti-entropy process. So... <laughs> In a way, is that why precious metals end up being such, you know, a great looking option to you? Is there anti-entropic properties? You know, the idea that gold doesn't tarnish, for example, is that, you know, in a a roundabout way? At some deep level, it's a very interesting point. (laughs) I've never, never made the association, but I love that association because it doesn't tarnish. Therefore, it's not like degrading. Mm-hmm. So, in terms of the un, the ultimate anti anti entropic substance, you can see where the alchemists loved it, um, and I think that's a really interesting insight. I like that a lot. Um, <laughs> but but I think you know the bottom line is it it basically you can carry it around when everything else falls. Mm-hmm. It's mobile, even if it you know, takes a few cart horses to get a few around. And I think it's also perceived to be further away from government intervention. Now, we know that's not the case because in the 30s, you know, government stole their people's gold. And, and we will see the same again, I'm pretty sure. Um, somewhere along the line here, as they try and fight inflation, they're going to have to go back to a gold standard. That'll be part of the process out of control, which comes back to the, the next issue, which is you how do you fight inflation? You reverse money printing by making your, your you know, a non-fiat currency. 
gold is part of that process to do it. Mm-hmm. And you create more productivity. The bottom line is you need to re- you need to invest in processes that produce more in societies. So if one thing that I think governments have, and you know, the trust government touched on exactly the right response: lower taxes, increase business investment, stimulate growth, create real growth, and real growth then narrows down the impact between inflation and, and outcomes. That is the only solution. So if you know, so central banks can't do that. And governments don't know how because they're too linear, don't understand the process. But if we were to put together the solution, it will be find a government organization that understood the entropic challenges to the West, whether it's conflict, uh, whether it's inflation, and then find solutions around spending enough money on defense that then creates deterrence that works. It's all a bit late now, but you know that's what we would do. Mm-hmm. Using that investment in defense to actually create a multiplicity of uh, investment for the country. And here's the interesting thing. If you spend money on a Navy and you control sea routes, you'll always get the return on your Navy because you enhance trading capability. If you just have an army, you're a bit buggered because your army either fights or it doesn't. And it only works if those trade routes are over land and you through overland routes, you can increase the rate and flow of, of your stimulus for your economy, mm-hmm. which doesn't work the same way. So, you know, one of the first things I'd say, stop thinking of defense as a cost because navies are actually a massive you know, revenue enhancer. Look at Britain. And the reason why Britain's wealth was so great was because it was a global maritime country that literally resourced itself as a pissant little island, pardon my language, from the rest of the world using the power of its navy. That is a business model. And it's one that could be replicated now if that's you know how money is spent. And it's interesting to look at Britain as it moves away from the blinkers of an EU world to the trade routes which have taken greater partnership with Japan. Now, what better partnership could there be? Britain had a strategic relationship with Japan from the late 19th century all the way through to the end of the First World War until we started to see they saw us as a direct competitor. We taught them how to build a navy, how to fight a navy. The Franco-Prussian War, Russian War was won in 1905 with naval, Royal Navy training and Royal Naval ships against Russian ships. Um, so we have that history, and it's now actually been reconnected. And so although Japan is the oldest of the Asian systems, it's full of technology, it's full of things that complement us. So that strategic relationship has come about because we broke away from Britain, from Europe, we see further, we see a conflict that reaches into our shores. And in, in the past, you always have your wars overseas. You don't let them come to your shores. For all those reasons, we're doing the right things, except for we don't have enough warships, we don't invest in our Navy sufficiently. And at the moment, it's a token. Imagine it was you know five times bigger and the Japanese actually knew it was protecting them. What benefit there would be economically in that relationship? Mm-hmm. David, I'd like to go back to you know, touching the ideas of precious metals and why they, you know, form a strong part of, let's say, your portfolio. Are the mining stocks a big part of that as well? And if you could give us some of the framework around what you see as a safe and or a mining stock type play that you are comfortable with. Well, look, I think the construct that I have is if there's one strategy that represents safe haven strategy, it's precious metals. Mm-hmm. And people have had them over time and nothing has happened. This is the time when I think it's all about to happen. And certainly, you know, we're based in gold at 610. We're based on silver. We're about to start to break out. And that is in line with the dollar's fall and commodities rallying elsewhere. But nonetheless, it's happening. And the gold miners, 
and the silver miners even more so were vastly undervalued versus their underlying if you look at the ratios of give backs in the time gold got from its peak of sort of 2100 back to 1610 and you look at the give backs that took place in some of the miners they were far deeper so they're far more undervalued and that was one of the reasons why I advocated having a portfolio of 20 gold and silver miners. Make sure you have more around 20. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't just concentrate because you can always have one mining CEO who does something with his secretary and it causes all sorts of grief. <laughs> Distributes a bit, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it said within that, you know, there are there's some super ones which we advocate. I won't talk to them on the open air waves. You can come to the site and learn. Um, and essentially building your portfolio. I think if you were bold, the multiplicity on that portfolio will be 10, 20x. It reminds me of the beginning of 2000. Lucor was, you know, 60 cents and went to $64. And we had a portfolio full of gold miners at the same time. I think that if you just bought those things, walked away, had a lovely holiday in between, you'll come back and that's your path to generational wealth. Mm-hmm. A combination of gold mining and gold, silver, some leverage in that process and platinum would be my ideal portfolio that would do the work for for you rather than you having to do the work of constantly managing it now in commodities you'll see the same thing having an oil you know an oil gas construct i think in shares it's a little different but you can do the same thing um having you know bhp and billiton miners all these base resources that's a safe haven and where the generational opportunity is you don't want to be in any of the things that basically built the bubble in the past few years technology all of that stuff forget it mm-hmm. and really if you're going to look for a more conventional portfolio think command economy what what companies entities would function in a command economy and would a government require and they could fit into it defense companies are obviously people have cottoned onto it mm-hmm. i think though what they haven't realized is you know we're coming off that base level in nato countries of two percent then if you think about Russia started the war with four and a half percent of GDP and it's looking at 13, 12 percent going forwards, the kicker in this defense expansion is huge. So, you know, small companies are, I mean, one of my favorite things is whoever makes a hunter killer drone that pervasively provides air cover to infantrymen on the ground, that the infantryman control does it with autonomous AI, and you're going across the battlefield knowing above you there are no drones because your combat air control has you know taken them all out. Mm-hmm. Whoever develops those, they're worth their weight in gold because they return the advantage back to the people on the ground. So there are systems like that where you know you see a company who's got an edge on that, man, I put that in my portfolio right away. Right. So there's areas like that, but the rest of it leave it alone you can trade it but don't think of it as a strategic investment Mm -hmm. so david you know stepping back what are some important let's say geopolitical themes to watch for this coming year is the taiwan conflict going to start to heat up is iran something that you're watching biden maybe surviving the end of his term are those all things that you you have your finger on the pulse of you well look i mean how biden persists in office is a small miracle really and I think the hubris attached to his ego is fascinating. That even in his state, he thinks he should run again. When you look at what a doddering chap he is, um, and I'm putting it politely, and really that one of the main pathways to this, the suffering in Ukraine is his route from Afghanistan. That was the red light, the red, the red flag to the bull who was Putin that you know engaged him, encouraged him to move forward into attack. So. Um, I think I don't know how he lives with himself really for the errors he and the signals he sends. 
Um, but I do think so. Watch his continuity. Although I think that, strangely enough, the White House and the government has adapted to his weak leadership. And I suspect that if you look at the levers of power, they're quite broadly distributed in the people underneath him. And so, you know, I, I suspect that's become a rather decentralized presidency, if you were to look at it. And the response to Ukraine is certainly one where on the surface you have Biden's fear of nuclear proliferation rather than calling Putin out. He just, you know, went around like a headless chicken saying, don't start World War Three. And if you look at the underlying response of support, which is far more looking like sort of Austin's type process, that will show you the diversification. So there's Biden. Um, I think the biggest issue is inflation and inflation's acceleration in and surge. It affects everything. It affects the viability of incumbent political parties. It affects the drumbeat of conflict for when China moves. Um, and I think, sadly, I'd be amazed if we get through this year without China having made its move, because then it'll be moving towards one year away from the two-year window when it thought it had hypersonic weapons, it can't really risk some American breakthrough in a sneaky beaky, you know, weapons organization that they roll out, mostly space-based dew weapons. If the if the Americans get those systems up in a in a like just like that, suddenly hypersonic glide weapons can't operate and do the damage to the American fleet. And it might only need a couple of stations with heavy lifts from Musk to put those systems up there. So I, I don't think they can take it for granted, which means they might be aggressive earlier rather than you know, live through their delay process. And I don't think we'll get any warning from it either. It won't be, let's go for Taiwan. There'll, there can be no opposed landing of Taiwan because you wouldn't get the amphibious forces across the straits mm -hmm. against contested, you know, US Navy and, and Taiwanese defense. I think it's much more likely a preemptive strike across US, Japanese and South Korean naval assets and bases, and then a blockade of Taiwan, and subsequently after 60, 100 days, when they felt like that the subsea war was going their, their way, and they'd pushed back American submarines. And there aren't that many of them when you look at the Atlantic and the Pacific and their deployment, possibly closed off the Suez Canal and Panama Canal. So the tra so trade routes now go through the choke areas of you know the Cape of Cape Horn and Cape Good Hope. And you know, if you look at what's going on in South Africa and the ANC, not popular with its people because of power cuts and inflation, but, you know, paid off by the CCP and the Russians as they seek to get control of that trade route. Or what's going on similarly in Argentina and Chile. It's like a giant game of chess happening in front of our eyes. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that scenario is very real. And sadly, you know, the, the nicer the Chinese become, the quieter their politicians and their diplomats become about wolf warrior diplomacy, the more worried I am because they'll strike when we least expect it. Mm -hmm. um, in in Russia, I don't think, the uh, in, in Ukraine rather, I don't think the Russians have the ability to mount an effective offence. We saw what happened when they turned up with their A-team and they got completely ablated with end-laws. Their mobility didn't work, didn't work for them. I can't really see how they can do that again on a scale that can even endanger the rest of the country. I can't see Belarus going to war with 15,000 soldiers knowing it's got to come through a narrow road in the north and swamps everywhere else, knowing what happened to the last Russian army that tried to do that. But I can see the Ukrainians mounting a counteroffensive. And I think the allies in NATO have decided to back that victory. So the, the catalyst comes through the delivery of these armoured systems. Poland and Finland will give Leopard 2s, uh, no doubt. Even if it means going against Germany, they're going to do it anyway. 
that combined with challenges, Bradley's, Marder's, you know, it makes a very effective armoured divisional structure, breaks through the outer crust. Once they're in the outer crust, the whole lot will roll up. And the next stop will be the Donbass probably left alone, the borders of the Crimea. There's talk about Americans giving long-range HIMAR missiles, which is specifically designed to get every operational base in Crimea, kill the Crimea Bridge. I can see that one folding, and somewhere Putin will be forced, ejected out. At that stage, we are going to be close to a ceiling of nuclear weapons again, as we were 12 weeks ago. Not that many people were even aware of the fact that 60 years after Cuba, you know, we could have gone to bed one day and it might not have happened because of a miscalculation between mm-hmm. Putin thinking he could use a singular weapon in Ukraine and that the West wouldn't respond to that. It took a threat of a massed conventional response only Americans could deliver. That's so destructive the only response that Russians would have had was to start the nuclear escalation ladder, which meant that you're all in it together. Now mutual sure destruction works and our ceiling was raised, which is why we're now talking about pushing Putin back because the West believes that ceiling is now higher. And I think they're right to believe it because we finally made the right noises of deterrence. What's really sad about that is we should have made those noises before Ukraine even started. Mm-hmm. Instead of cowering in the corner, not understanding escalate to de-escalate and having Putin running around like a headless chicken saying, don't start a nuclear war. So, um, And the reason why you see those threats today is not because the ceiling is lowered, it's because the Russians are trying to scare the Germans into not letting the leopards in, because they are a key to a definitive victory. But even without the leopards, I suspect they could pull it off. Wow, David, there's a lot, a lot to think about there and a lot to you know consider going forward there's so much so much change on the horizon and i appreciate you giving your your thoughts to us around what that change looks like today no tom it's always a pleasure you're well read you've you know you have some idea of the themes you're talking about but it's a pleasure to talk to you about it in a holistic way that this is these periods of you know that are marked by high inflation surges people need to think of them as entropic Mm -hmm. entropic means changes of the types and timing that you didn't expect, outcomes that surprise you. And so there are going to be surprises that maybe I haven't been able to predict. Mm-hmm. One thing I can say is entropic periods are full of surprises. Be prepared, like keep scanning the horizon and be adaptive. And that's the way through it. And those that aren't and don't you know, adopt that strategy for survival suffer terribly. Those that do, there's a way through it. It's not the end of the world. I don't, I should say, I don't think this war is going to reach the nuclear ceiling. So, you know, the Chinese and the Russians are seeking to fight a war below the nuclear threshold. Mm-hmm. And there's a very interesting kind of piece. You, you may have studied what goes on on the Hindu Kush between, you know, the Russians and the, the Indians and the Chinese. And a lot on those high mountain ranges, they agreed not to use any firearms and gunpowder weapons. So they come together with clubs and sticks and start beating the crap out of each other. And now the Indians are training their battalions in combat and then sending them up, and the Chinese will be doing the same. And the intriguing thing about this is here we are in the time of, you know, total destruction, if we so choose it. But these systems are now saying, these are the rules, we're going to engage in ritualistic fighting, and we're still going to keep fighting. That's the most, that that is to the very heart of human nature to fight. Mm-hmm. What they're looking to do is underneath the rules of, you know, escalation, conventional conflict, rising to two nuclear powers, they're now fighting, in effect, in the old way of Sparta and Athens with soldiers with clubs. And what amazes me is why they don't have shields, swords, because they're all non-gunpowder weapons. But I bet you they turn up. 
-hmm. and they're, they're looking at redeveloping how we used to fight thousands of years ago under that constraint watch it because it, it is a fascinating study in in this human desire to dominate wherever possible under the rules available yeah it's quite interesting to think about let's say the different modalities and the different avenues not just in battle but in life in general that are in some ways coming back to the forefront and coming back to importance right yeah and i think that importance is that we we survive as a race because darwinistically we select the strongest stronger social systems stronger genes and as soon as and much as liberal societies essentially embrace you know and we would agree that we would be the first to embrace it you know everyone is welcome everyone is inclusive but the moment you've got to call to the battlements actually the people that can fight on the battlements have value the people that can't fight on the battlements are less valuable mm -hmm. suddenly become you know something you carry with you and women were always you know less able but they carried our children so that was part of the process but non-productive procreational dynamics are something that i think came with this period of decline and hedonism and and hubristic sort of western liberalism and that's not to say that i don't think people should have freedom to be all they can be and to maximize themselves and expose that mm -hmm. but for society to spend so much time on it has been counter um intuitive i think and actually counterproductive and when you look at kind of wokeism in the west compared to russia and china they have just flattened them dead not i think because if they could find a way to make it productive for their system, they would incorporate it. The perception is for them, if you're not harnessed to our expansion and our domination of the world, then it doesn't help. And we in the West have to bear in mind, whatever liberal constructs we have, they need to also incorporate that people can stand up and go shoulder to shoulder as in Ukraine. Mm -hmm. I bet you, you know, work values in Ukraine have dropped like number 10 on the list, number one survival, number two food, number three, where are my relatives? And that's, that hierarchy of needs is about to reassert itself mm -hmm. across the West, I think. Yeah, it's interesting. It's almost like we need a new Manhattan Project or something that forces people to come together to really solve a big problem, to really come together collectively and really energize onto one particular project instead of you know stemming a million different ways and not having a singular problem to focus on maybe well and the, the, what that's what war does it creates coherency of the social system to focus on the problem of how do we win mm -hmm. and you know the manhattan project was the solution to that or one of the solutions right now i suspect the americans are beginning to think about their anti you know hypersonic weapon program in the same terms mm -hmm. of the resources required to achieve it I'm sure that it's a huge, huge undertaking with multi-agency involvement. But the population themselves, our populations, haven't worked out that we are at war. And our politicians perpetrate that lie. I mean, you know, the last time that Lend-Lease was operated by America in the same way was essentially after September 19, 1940, Battle of Britain, Joe Kennedy had been kicked out because you know, he said Britain wouldn't make it. Roosevelt started Lend-Lease. And within a short period of time, American materials, American ships were being torpedoed by German submarines. And then American destroyers appeared to defend them. And America was engaged in a war. I don't really see the difference between that and now with Ukraine. Mm -hmm. So, and what's interesting is 
once the jack-in-the-box comes out of the box of conflict, escalation, inflation, you never get the damn thing back in until it's run its course. Mm -hmm. And that's something everyone should realize and demand of their leaders to recognize. Because then the next step you have is you recognize it early and you realize deterrence is your next last best bet. Having abandoned it, let the jack-in-the-box out, you now need to put a deterrence shield up to at least at the last minute, see if you can stop the worst outcomes. None of those are prevalent in our societies because our politicians are pretending this is some Iraq and Afghanistan war which was isolated and maybe that's one of the problems we've had two wars which never came home apart from the risk of a bit of terrorism and I say a bit because I think our response was of the wrong magnitude because it cloaked our response to what was the big magnitude which is Russia and China but essentially this is idea that this isn't going to affect us and just watching the television my admiration for the Ukrainian people, the way they bond together in their common cause to survive and fight for their country is something that I think the West, we should really a, admire, but B, realize it could be coming to us soon at a location close to us. Mm-hmm. Well, David, there's some some big ideas and some big themes to chew on for our listeners in this interview. And I, uh, I appreciate you sharing those with us today. Tom, it's, it's really always a pleasure to to discuss the big topics with you. Absolutely. Stay with those precious metals, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, your Twitter page at Global Forecaster and your website where all of your your videos, your articles, your links are posted, davidmurrin.co.uk, right? Yeah. And if you're interested in these ideas, I really urge you to sign up for the Murray Nations. It's not going to cost you more than half a newspaper a month, but all the, the theories, predictions they're there they were set up so they'll keep you educated ahead of the curve and your updates will all be there so i urge you if you're interested in the things we talked about to take a step further and immerse yourself in in the availability of those 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 thoughts excellent david thanks so much for your time today great pleasure my friend This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests on this show are not compensated for their appearance. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. Do not base any investment decisions on the information contained. To view our full disclaimer, please visit our website.